Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's August, and for many people, the soundtrack of late summer is classic rock. So I thought I'd take a trip through the vault and give some of my favorite interviews with classic rockers another spin. Later in the show, we'll meet Liberty DeVito, author of the memoir, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's about the 30 years he spent playing drums for Billy Joel. We talk about how they met and get some inside scoop. For instance, did you know that Only the Good Die Young was written as a reggae song? Well, that's later on. We'll also meet Ace Frehley, the original lead guitarist and co-founding member of KISS. I was a card-carrying member of the KISS Army and got the chance to ask Ace about working with KISS, his new music, and why he doesn't approve of all the KISS merchandise that features his image. We'll also meet John Lennon's personal photographer, Bob Gruen. The legendary photographer opens up about taking famous pictures of every rock star, from David Bowie and Led Zeppelin to The Clash and The Sex Pistols. First, though, let's get to know cheap trick guitarist Rick Nielsen and bassist Tom Peterson. The story begins in Rockford, Illinois, where Rick and Tom grew up and where Rick's father was a professional musician and ran a music shop. Well, Rockford, Illinois, is where, which is where you're both from, and, right. and you still live there, right, Tom? You don't. I don't. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. You live in Nashville now, but uh, but Rick, you still live there. You I grew do. up there. Your dad's store was there. Your your parents were opera singers and involved in music. So, do you think that you were kind of predestined to be a musician, or is it is that off base? You know, it's like the only thing I can remember ever liking. You know, yeah. you know, besides drinking heavily you know no. uh you know my my parents were you know professional musicians which is like and my, both my mother and father worked and we started off near chicago and moved to rockford when i was uh, in 1956 so then you know I was just a little kid yeah and um you know my father sang in choirs and was choir director and he had a radio show WMBI Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and he sang with Billy Graham and and the, and the first time I ever was ever on stage it was a, I walked out on stage not supposed to but uh, Bar Barbara Seville I walked out wow. this is the truth I was, I was three years old I walked out on a stage you know went, go to see my dad yeah your dad's you know, out there. what's he dressed up like that for you know it's like I walked out there and people started laughing and clapping <laughs> and that's what I like Still to this day, laughing and, and clapping. And now here we are all these years later. Uh, Tom, you used to shop at the record and, and music store, right? In his dad's store? Yeah. Well, everyone did. He would not really shop because he couldn't afford what you wanted. <laughs> so we'd look at, he had Vox Super Beatles and things like that. And oh, there's a Gretsch Country Gentleman and there's a Hofner bass and there's a Rickenbacker. Oh my God. And how much would they have cost at the time? Like, uh, well, I the most, probably not that much. The most like, expensive guitar in the be, world was, a, I think, a Country Gent and it was $600, which right. would be about $60,000 in today's. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you, it would be exactly. But Rick, your first guitar only cost 65 bucks, right? Well, my first Les Paul that I ever yeah. bought it was, uh, it was 1965. I paid $65 for it, you know, it was 10 years old then, you know, because it was a 55. You so know. it was used, not an antique, yeah, right? There was yeah. no antique they, guitars. Yeah, they never called it anything vintage and all that kind That's of why thing. people refinished them and wrecked them and thought nothing of it. And now, Tom, were you a gearhead back then? Yes, and it really was uh, the Beatles and Stones connection or Kinks or whoever. Whatever they were using was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, yeah. So that was like, but those things really... 
for most people, me included, were out of reach. Really, the only thing people could really afford or that your parents would <laughs> buy for you yeah. were from Sears, you know, or Dan Electros or some lower end uh, Harmony or yeah. something. You know, like, you know, naturally they're going to get you a guitar, but they're going to buy a $600 guitar or a $60 guitar. Well, right. they don't know what you're going to do. But. And I didn't need a country gent anyway. Do you have a, <laughs> do you have a picture of the, the receipt you got? Oh, well, you I don't. I should mother. have a picture of it. I brought in, my mother sent me a, my original receipt from a Vox AC30 my parents bought for me in 1965 from Rick's dad's store. Your first bass, is that it? Or no, it's an amp. It's it's a, amp. I, I was a guitar player at first, right. so I didn't play bass until a few years later. Right. So it's just the, it's so that, weird, so the original cool. I mean, receipt. You're about throwing away your the dad, Your dad's yeah. handwriting on there, and they had all my dad's information, how much he made per week, and he had to <laughs> put it on layaway, of course. Cause wow. It, you know, that's the he, way it was he done. worked at Morton Salt as a salesman, so he wasn't, you know, didn't have money. Yeah, yeah. With the encouragement of their parents, Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson formed several bands and toured Europe before heading back to the United States and forming Cheap Trick with singer Robin Zander and drummer Bun E. Carlos. The name was inspired by the band's attendance at a Slade concert, where Peterson commented that the band used, quote, every cheap trick in the book as part of their act. In 1976, they landed in New York City to record their first album, give Andy Warhol guitar lessons, and play gigs at some of the city's most famous clubs, like Max's Kansas City. Here's more with Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson of Cheap Trick. Tell me about Max's first. This is Tom. Uh, tell me about Max's because I've only ever read about it. It's a legendary rock and roll bar in it's, New York City. Long gone. Yeah, it's down like around, I don't know, 15th and Park Avenue. Yeah. It's a photo store or something now. But anyway, it it was the kind of the rival club to CBGB. CBGB's was like total punk scene and Max's was like the glam scene. You're listening to Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen and bassist Tom Peterson on The Richard Krause Show. And that's where Andy Warhol hung out and you gave a guitar lesson to Andy Warhol. Did that happen at Max's? Uh, no, that happened when we played at uh, bottom the Bottom Line. Right. And uh, he came, saw us at our show first actually our first show because we didn't do the second one we didn't play the second set that night and the owner said you're never gonna work new york again you know like, oh no you know it's like so we didn't like the music or? no no he was right about one thing we never worked the bottom line again yeah <laughs> sorry to hear it our first record did you know it wasn't even out and when we played at max's kansas city if we're going back to that, yeah. you know, I think it was like a Thursday night in 1976 while we were doing our first album. And when Paul and Gene, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons came in, yes, they knew about us. And we, you know, of course, we obviously knew them, but we never really met them. But uh, they came to our show. And I think there was maybe 15 people there. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it was like we were totally unknown, but we wanted to play and uh, it was set up for us. And uh we entertained those two boys. I want to rock and roll all night. 
With Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley of KISS in their corner, Cheap Trick hits the road on the tour that I was talking about earlier when I saw them in Halifax in 1977. But despite relentless touring, the band didn't exactly catch fire in North America at least. In Japan, they were received with a frenzy reminiscent of Beatlemania. In April 1978, they recorded an album at Japan's Budokan Arena and released it as a live album entitled Cheap Trick at Budokan. Initially intended to be exclusive to Japan, it was released in North America in 1978 and launched them into international stardom. Here's more with Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson of Cheap Trick. Tell me about Tom going to Japan for the first time. Well, we were shocked that we had that. Well, we knew we had success, otherwise we wouldn't be going there. But we didn't really quite realize how extreme it was. I mean, yeah. it was so extreme that it it was exhausting. You couldn't <laughs> you could not do one thing. You couldn't look out of the hotel window. You couldn't go in the hall. You couldn't go to restaurants. You couldn't do anything. It was. Great, but it went on for that went on for a few weeks when we were there the first time in 1978. And it was like a, before wow. that though, like we had Clock Strikes Ten, which mm -hmm. got no airplay any place except there. That was number one. I want you to want me was number one. And so we were getting airplay, which we weren't getting any any place else. Hey, why Why do you think it clicked in Japan? Well, you know, you you don't really know ever. Yeah. There's no uh, certainly no formula, but they said that they just. I think they they got a kick out of kind of our cartoonish look. Right. I think they thought it was funny and then they love they love like pop music and heavy stuff too, but they, they like to learn a lot of people uh learn English from our records, they told right. us. That's how they would learn, listen to our songs. So it was kind of interesting. But I you know, I I don't know. I think We we played rock and roll, you know, yeah. not like complicated so much where you couldn't follow it but not so simple and like tom said you know, people learned their learned english off not just our records but it's like when you hear the live at budokan record when you hear that it's like i want you to want me right. he says it like that because the promoter said talk slow so they can understand <laughs> it here's a song from our new record i mean we don't talk like that but they told us and this next song is called i want It was only going to be released in, in well, Japan, so... Yeah, that was just sort of like a thank you to the fans of Japan, right? Totally. Well, it started out it was a, for a television show. And then they, when they and taped the, the show, them. they realized, oh, well, well, we might as well just throw a record together here yeah, and yeah. release that. Okay, fine. And that's well, what happened. The first trip we went in 78, we were, you know, we were riding coach over yeah. there. And we got to, and we stayed in a hotel. I stayed with Tom. Two guys in a room. I mean, I haven't stayed two people in a room since my kid was born. Well, yeah. we could, later, we're thinking about it. Wait a minute. We had two of us each in a room, but they had the whole floor blocked off. Yeah. No, so, wait a minute. Couldn't we have just taken one of the other rooms? Yeah, really. It was, funny. it was funny. Yeah, but we never, we didn't think about it. I mean, we left probably the last show we did was in Iowa. We were all four in a room. And there was no, you know, there's, well, there was TV, but yeah. it was all, all just Japanese. There was no right. CNN or anything like that. So it was all. Japanese game shows, and that's pretty much it. You yeah, sit in so, your room and, and don't look out trapped. the window. Like, yeah, okay. Do you take that time to write songs? What do you do? Ron, <laughs> no. what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't think we wrote anything there. It was Wait. like, it was just pandemonium over there. We were probably nursing hangovers every day, so it didn't really matter. That was Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen and bassist Tom Peterson on the Richard Krauss Classic Rock Special. <laughs>
1972, my guest, Ace Frehley, saw a small ad in the Village Voice. It read, lead guitarist wanted with flash and ability. He answered the ad and soon after joined Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, and Peter Chris in forming KISS with his intergalactic face paint and a Les Paul that blew smoke from its neck and produced spinning pyrotechnics, Ace's Spaceman character was a mainstay of the band's original lineup. He left the band in 1982, embarking on a solo career, which was put on hold when he rejoined KISS in 1996 for a highly successful reunion tour. After completing the farewell tour with KISS in late 2001, Fraley left the band and resumed his solo career, which included Origins Volume 1 in 2016, a collection of covers of influential rock songs, and it features guest appearances from Slash, Lita Ford, Mike McCready, and Fraley's former KISS bandmate, Paul Stanley. This week, Origins Volume 2 comes out with covers of Led Zeppelin's Good Times, Bad Times, The Kinks, Lola, The Animals, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, Deep Purple Space Trucking, and even a new version of KISS's 1975 single, She, that appears as a bonus cut. I caught up with Space Ace recently. The first rock record I bought, I believe, was I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles, 45. And that kind of changed everything, right? It, it started the process, you know, the whole English invasion. And then, you know, by, by the time Cream and Hendrix and The Who uh, evolved, uh, you know, the floodgates were open. Now, you have influenced so many guitar players, but who you mentioned Jimi Hendrix, you mentioned Cream, uh, you've covered some of those songs on these Origins albums, but who were your earliest influences on guitar? Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, yeah, yeah. Jim McCarty, the lead guitar player. I remember figuring out that guitar solo in Devil with a Blue Dress song, which was a hit in the U.S. I don't know if it was Canada. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I had to slow down the record <laughs> to figure out the notes. <laughs> the nice thing about records, you could slow them down. Yeah, that, and then I, my brother and sister bought the Birds album, Turn, Turn, Turn. You know, and then once I got my own stuff, you know, you know, I just started going. I, I was a big Stones fan, more so than the Beatles. You cover Jumpin' Jack Flash on Origins Volume 2. You say you're a huge Stones fan. How did you uh, choose the songs to cover on this album? You've got a lifetime of music to choose from. Why these songs? They just seem like logical choices. Uh, you know, they're all, all the songs on this record are bands that influenced me when I was a teenager, you know, learning how to play guitar. You know, people say you never took a guitar lesson. I go, well, I didn't need a guitar instructor because, you know, I had Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton. <laughs> interpret the songs to make them your own. They, the songs are unmistakably their own, but they also, I think, are also unmistakably yours as well. How do you, how do you find a balance between, you know, the classic song that we all know and love and then putting your own spin on it? Well, I mean, I don't really want to copy the solo note for note. So obviously I want to put 
my stamp on the guitar solo. The vocal is unmistakably me because I have that Bronx accent. Yeah. You know, I'm not <laughs> going to sound like Mick Jagger or, or whoever. But, uh, and you know, obviously the production tools that I have to work with today are far superior to the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, working pro- with Pro Tools digitally, you know, it, it's so much easier, the editing process, uh, the plugins you have to, to make the song sound rich, you know. Well, you know, now you have, you know, so many mixing tools to make a song sound thick and big and rich that wasn't available to the people in the 60s. You're listening to Ace Frehley, the original guitarist and co-founding member of KISS on the Richard Krauss Classic Rock Special. And you're literally recording some of this stuff in studios and at your own home. I understand you have a, a recording studio there, but then emailing parts to people and they're emailing parts back to you. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of bands record records today without even being in the same room. Yeah. You know, when Paul Stanley did this, the vocal for Fire and Water, he emailed that. I, I emailed him, you know, just the, the stems from Pro Tools. He threw down the vocal, emailed it back to me. Uh, same thing with, with Jim. Uh, who's the guitar player in uh, Pearl Jam? Mike McCready. Mike McCready. Who, yeah, same thing, you know, because he played on Cold Gin on Origins Volume 1. Uh, with Robin Zander for this record, you know, he's in Florida, I'm in California, so, uh, or was, I'm back on the East Coast now, thank God, uh, back to my roots, but uh, I, I emailed it to Robin and he went in the studio, you know, with Pro Tools, you just send whatever somebody needs, you know, you can send them a stereo mix, they can put a vocal on top, send it back to me, and then my engineer will drop it into the multi-track. And uh, it works real nice, and it's easy, quick, and efficient. Does it give you the same buzz when you hear the final product as it did, like when you would just put all the band in one sweaty room and just rock it out that way? Yeah, it's actually more exciting for me now because I'm producing my own records, you know. With Kiss, I was just, you know, a team player at best in the beginning. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Paul and Gene dominated the earlier stuff until I, you know, did my first lead vocal with Shockby. And then, you know, I started doing more and more and more. But uh, I, you know, I enjoy recording now much more than before because, you know, I, I control everything. And, you know, if it stinks, it's because of me. If it sounds really good, it's because of me. Well, it's it, it's interesting to look at it because you're recording a lot of stuff. You've been very prolific. And during the, the coronavirus downtime, uh, you recorded new music for another record, not Origins Volume 2, but a new one after this, right? Well, I've started writing. I haven't really started recording the next studio record because I just got a new home. I'm in the process of building a studio in the basement. Yeah, I'll be ready in about a month. And, but I've been writing songs for the next record. Because Origins Volume 2 was finished around the holidays. The last thing we did was She, right. which showcased uh, the vocal abilities of my touring band. And I redid the vocals on Lola, the harmonies. My, girl, my current girlfriend, Laura Cove, redid the... Uh, 
harmony vocals that right. my old girlfriend Rachel did. <laughs> so I erased hers and put on Laura's, and actually Laura's sound better. So it was a a win-win. so much kiss merchandise out there what's the the wildest piece of kiss merchandise that's out there in your opinion probably the coffins which i'm not happy about because yeah. uh you know recently a good friend of mine passed away dimebag daryl's brother Vinny paul and I, I they asked me to speak at the funeral in dallas and then they asked me to speak at the grave in the graveyard, and, the, and it was I saw that it was a kiss coffin, and it was pretty weird because I saw my face, you know, plastered on the coffin with yeah. Paul Dean and Peter, and uh, I just I don't think it's appropriate. That was Ace Frehley, the original lead guitarist and co-founding member of Kiss, on the Richard Krauss Classic Rock Special. <laughs> My guest today joins me via Zoom, but you've been listening to him via records and the radio for decades. As Billy Joel's drummer from 1976 to 2003, he's credited as drummer on records with sales, and get this, of over 150 million copies. Do you love Just the Way You Are? Well, that's Liberty DeVito. How about She's Always a Woman? Only the good die young. You may be right, or it's still rock and roll to me. Well, that's all Liberty DeVito. He's what they call a New York City-style drummer, solid and powerful. He's also the author of a new memoir, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, available wherever you buy fine books. It details not only the good times with Billy Joel, but also the bad leading up to their split in 2006. Do you ever think back to uh, your grade six teacher who told you because you couldn't do the buzz roll in Star Spangled Banner that you should just give it up? You'll never be a drummer. Forget about this. Did that make you work harder to play the drums and just to show him up? Or what did that do to your psyche? Well, it, it, I was very discouraged. I was very discouraged when he said that because I, I loved music before I loved the drums. Right. The drums just so happened uh, to, to be in my life. Uh, I asked my dad later on in life why the drums. And, and he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid, so we got you a drum. <laughs> so um, uh, he, he discouraged me. And, and I think that's really cruel that what he did. I mean, uh, to discourage a kid from having a dream. But, um, but I continued to listen to music. And then it was when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show. That was that. That's when I pointed at the TV and I said, "I want to do that." You know, screw the buzz roll. <laughs> <laughs> Your dad tried to discourage you from becoming a musician. He thought, essentially, that musicians were bums, right? He said, "You're not going to make any money. Why are you even bothering with this?" But you did. You pushed through that, and right. just out of high school, you auditioned for Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes. Uh, you played with Mitch Ryder on the road for six weeks right out of high school. You're 16, 17 years old, something like that. And tell me about what that was like, because I don't think 
you were, uh, you know, flying in jets around the U.S. playing with Mitch Ryder. As amazing as he was, that was the the years where you would be in a bus, right? Uh, like a, a school bus almost. Well, yeah, you're talking a bus, like uh, a passenger bus that, you know, you want to go downtown? Yeah, you take this bus. And yeah, uh, I say in the book, uh, I talk about how my pea coat was my pillow and you just stretched out across the seats, you know, but every, the, the thing that, the reason why I wrote the book was because there's so many um, videos out there of, of how to learn how to play the drums. And, uh, you know, um, uh, my book is about how I did it, you know, uh, all the, the steps and what happened. It's, it's a book about life. You're sitting in that chair because your life led you there. Right. You know, I played with Billy Joel because my life led me there. I took the road that that was best suited for me. You know, uh, I, I didn't join a, a jazz band because I really can't play jazz. I just kept playing rock and roll. And there's a lot of people out there that are like me. Yeah. So and we found each other. And it was, it's been great. How does Billy Joel come into this picture? You're playing with Topper. Uh, you had met him before, but how did you end up becoming part of the band and, and, and part Topper, I guess, becoming his band? Well, we all got in because uh, Doug Stegmeyer was the, um, the first one to be hired by Billy on the Street Life Serenader tour. And then after that tour, Billy wanted to move back to New York and make a new album, the album that eventually became Turnstiles. And he wanted a New York style drummer. And Doug said, well, you know the guy. You know, it meant me because we had played together in the same club. And um, as we were recording it, Billy would say, well, we need some guitars on this, you know. And then we said, well, we know guitar players. <laughs> and that's how Topper eventually became the Billy Joel band. You know, and Actually, I, like, I like to think of it as, as Topper got a good singer and, and songwriter and piano player. You're listening to Liberty DeVito on the Richard Krause Classic Rock Special. Check out his book, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, available now wherever you buy fine books. What did he mean when he said, I need a New York-style drummer? What does that mean? A hard hitter, um, aggressive, you know, New York is very aggressive. You know, it's funny when I played with Stevie Nicks, uh, I played with her for six months. And um, the, the guys from California were always like, oh, come on, you got to lay back. You got to, you know, they're into this whole laid back thing. And, and, and I play a certain way. And it wasn't until we played Saturday Night Live that the bass player, uh, 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 Wizard, it was his name. He was in a band called Mother's Finest. He looked around Saturday Night Live and saw how fast things were changing. The scenes changed, the actors, everything changed. And he goes, wow, now I know why you play like you do. Everybody's like you in New York. You played with Billy Joel from 1976 to 2003. You were there for that big leap where you're playing in clubs, playing seven shows a week. And then all of a sudden, you're playing in arenas. And in fact, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm Zooming you from Toronto right now. And just down the street exactly is Maple Leaf Toronto. Gardens. Yeah, your first Perfect. arena show, right? That was the first one. And we played sideways. Um, you know, usually we play, you play uh, from the end, like when, when you come out of the dressing rooms and the, the hockey guys come out and stuff like that. We played sideways because we didn't think we were going to do well. And everybody was watching it because it was a transformation from the theaters to arenas. And it, it was very exciting to do it, you know? I mean, uh, and uh, Toronto was very a great place to play. We gave it our all, 
you know, it was like, this could be the last time we ever play. If we don't make it here, we're not going to come back again, right. you know? And we built those audiences. You say in the movie Hired Gun, if Billy is the father of those songs, I'm at least the uncle. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I always thought of it as, as Ringo was in a, in a band called the Beatles. Everything was divvied up equally, you know, when the records came out, except the publishing. Um, I was in a band that had the lead singer's name on it, Billy Joel. He was signed, he was signed to the label. Now, when we went in the studio, I would make up my drum parts, just like Ringo would make up his drum parts. And so what is the difference from what I did to what Ringo did? It's, we did exactly the same thing, you know, and, but Ringo is noted as being a part of those songs. You know, he's Ringo, he's the drummer in the Beatles. You know, I'm in the Beatles. Oh, did Billy tell you what to play? That's the question you get all the time. No, he didn't. <laughs> you know, sometimes he had something in his head that he wanted me to play, but most of the times we all made up our own stuff, our own parts. Well, there's, there's I, I can hear, uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you, um, in Only the Good Die Young, there's that great thing that, that is so much a part of the song. Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. All the sooner or later, it comes down to fate. I might as well will be the one. Right. It, it's a riff. It's like a guitar riff. It's like uh, anything. It is part of the song, and you kind of can't imagine the song without that part. Well, you know, it was originally a reggae song. Was it? Only the good day young, yeah. I cannot imagine that. I can't it was hear it. <laughs> it, it, it was terrible. That's the way I heard it first. We were in Knoxville, Tennessee, and me and the sound guy, Brian Ruggles, left for two days to join the circus. They were playing in town, too, you know. So we stayed with them for two days. I came back, and Richie Kanonik was running up to me, and he says, you got to hear the song that Billy wrote. And when he played it, he played it for me on a guitar, and it was like a reggae thing. Yeah. And, and did you say, uh, let's work on that? Well, I, the closest you've ever been to Jamaica is the Jamaica train station where the Long Island Railroad stops. <laughs> and, and kind of caused a, a few problems for the band. Do you remember that happening that time? Well, it was banned by um, the, the Catholic diocese. And, uh, and the, the funny part is, is that when you tell a teenager or a young person that you can't do something, they want to know more about it. Yeah, yeah. So the, the song was falling off the charts. After that came out, that it was banned, it took off like crazy, you know? Uh, Billy always says that he puts a couple of bucks in the uh, envelope on Sunday. <laughs> Thank you. A couple of extra bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Liberty DeVito. Check out his book, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Now, we've already heard from two members of Cheap Trick, one member of Kiss, that was pretty cool, and Liberty DeVito, who played drums for Billy Joel for 30 years. Now, let's hear from a non-musician who helped to find a generation or two of music. Bob Gruen has taken photographs of everyone from Cab Calloway and Chuck Berry to the boss and Madonna from the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin to his best friend, John Lennon, in one of the most famous pictures ever taken of a rock and roll star. Here, Bob Gruen tells the story of the famous New York City t-shirt photograph that has donned dorm room walls for years and years. Here's rock photographer 
Bob Gruen. One of the most iconic photographs it does get of, its, it's, of its era. When my mom's friends started knowing that picture, she realized I really had gotten somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and you know, not only is it John Lennon, mm. but that that T-shirt. I think you single-handedly kept the the life of this T-shirt uh, alive for the last. And, and I don't even know who made it. It's not from a company. There was just two guys who used to sell them on a blanket in Times Square. Really. And the first time I saw it, I just liked the power of the graphics. And I bought myself one, and then I saw him again. I bought myself a few more. Uh, one night on the way to visit John in the studio, I saw the guys in the street, and I bought one for him. And I cut the sleeves off with a buck knife to give it a kind of New York feel. Right. Uh, and it was actually a year later that we were taking the picture, and um, John had been to L.A. and back. You know, there was a lost weekend mm -hmm. involved, and the fact that he still had the shirt and knew where it was, um, I knew he liked it. <laughs> Uh, and he looked so comfortable in it, and I think that because we were friends by that time, and he was very comfortable with me, uh, the picture kind of shows an openness and a availability. Uh, even though he's got the glasses, he yeah, looks yeah. like a pop star. Uh, he's very available in that picture. Well, and, and do you know, when you're taking them, I assume that you probably took... We took a couple of rolls of film. Yeah, a couple day. of rolls. Yeah. That's <laughs> one for, 20 sure. or 30 pictures, maybe. I don't yeah, know, maybe least, more. Yeah, at least, And when you're developing them and mm -hmm. you're looking at them and you go, oh, that's the well, one. Well, I have a sense for that. I can look at a contact print and you just look through it and you just pick the one that has the feeling and the power. Because uh, for me, I've always tried to capture the feeling of what's going mm -hmm. on and not just the facts. Um, so that's always been very important. And you became his personal photographer, and you were you were friends. How did that happen? Uh, well, I met Johnny Yoko through an interview, and uh, it turned out they liked the pictures I did. I, I took some pictures that night. I was actually working on a story about the Elephant's Memory Band mm. uh, that they were using as a backup yeah, band. Yeah, with Yoko um, and John. Right? And yeah. they liked the pictures I took of the group all together and put it in their album cover, and uh, that's when I first met them and started talking to them. And uh, they liked me, and they asked me to come around more often, and... Uh, they actually lived around the corner, a half a block from my house, when they came to New York. Well, and you went, you did something that was kind of remarkable. You took some photographs, mm. and then you said, I'll, I'll drop these off to you. I'll actually show them to you. Well, the first time I ever saw them was at the Apollo Theater. They yeah. were there for a benefit. When they were leaving backstage, a couple of people were taking their little Instamatic kind of pictures, yeah. and I took a couple of pictures. And John said to the few standing around, he said, people are always taking our picture like this and we never see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you mine. And he said, oh, around the corner, we'll slip them under the door, like very neighborly. Like, yeah. uh, I didn't quite slip it under the door. I did ring the bell. That's right. yeah, yeah. Uh, and much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'd only seen him on TV. And I was not <laughs> expecting him to answer John and Yoko's doorbell, you know. Um, and I remember he asked if they were expecting me, and I said no, and I just left the pictures for them. Uh, and a few years later, when, after we got to be friends, Yoko and I were talking about that at one point, and she said that really impressed them because nobody wanted to just give them something and leave. Right. Everybody wanted something back. Wanted a piece and, of uh, it, yeah. You know, I just thought, I'll give them to you and see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it mattered, <laughs> you know, they liked that. And you were there for some remarkable moments uh, in his life, including, mm. I think, the last time that he and Paul were in a room together. Paul McCartney were in a room I don't know together. if it was the last time they ever saw each other, but I was there one December when uh, yeah. we were in the, in the bedroom watching TV, and all of a sudden the doorbell rang. And they live in a very secure building, like yeah. the doorbell of the apartment does not <laughs> ring unless the doorman has told right. you somebody's going to come and ring it. <laughs> so the last time that happened, it was customs agents trying to throw John out of the country. So they, they were, I mean, immigration agents. But they, so they were a little nervous, and they asked me to go check the door. And they were double doors, so I opened the inside door, and I heard some Christmas carols. And I yelled back and said, don't worry, it's just kids singing Christmas carols. 
But I opened the outside door, and it was Paul and Linda McCartney. And uh, wow. not just kids. <laughs> uh, and I said, oh, I think you want to see the guys in the bedroom. And I brought them in. And uh, they were all very happy to see each other in spite of what lawyers or press mm -hmm. people say. Uh, they seemed like old friends who were very happy to see each other. They were English. They had a cup of tea. Right. You know, and uh, it was a very nice meeting. Yeah, I was uh, but I didn't take any pictures because they didn't ask me to. And right. it wasn't a public event. And I didn't want to turn it into a public event and say, hey, you're two Beatles. Let me take a picture. Because yeah, yeah. they just seemed like old friends. Well, I always felt that there was. I was a waiting for them to ask me. Right. <laughs> well, I always felt that there was a bond between mm -hmm. them that would not be broken by lawyers and right. whatever else happened right. in the press. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it feels uh, like we you sense that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And certainly, over the years, what I've seen, you know, Ringo stayed close with Yoko uh, through the years. Um, you know, business is business. That's yeah. one thing handled by the lawyers, and the press sometimes get word from lawyers, but people tend to uh, relate more personally. Right. So, this photograph. That, this photograph of John at the Statue of Liberty, I think, is one of my most important. Uh, we actually started talking about it in October, because um, the U.S. government was trying to throw John out of the country. Mm -hmm. I think that his crime was that he talked about peace in the time of war, and uh, President Nixon was very afraid that he was going to galvanize support for peace in a time of war, so they wanted to throw him out of the country. Uh, and I felt that the Statue of Liberty was a symbol of welcome to America, and that if John was out there by the statue, it would be a statement that we should be welcoming this great artist to America and not trying to throw him out. Oddly enough, the, it didn't really get published a lot at the time. Uh, I think a lot of people were didn't really want to get involved in the politics right. of the case. Uh, after he passed away, has become one of my most popular pictures, because I think that people see... Um, you know, John Lennon as a symbol of personal freedom, similar to the Statue of Liberty. You're listening to Bob Gruen in conversation on The Richard Krause Show. It wasn't a big production to go there. Now, if you were to take no, that photograph... you need permissions and things. Well, you have to get searched and you have to get, you know, just going onto the boat to go yeah. to the island is, is much more of a production. Uh, back then, you didn't have to make a reservation or anything <laughs> in advance. Uh, I actually picked John up in my car. We drove down to the Bowery. Uh, just got on the boat. I mean, he was an English guy, like a tourist, you know. Yeah. You're, you're, well, uh, and, but also one English of the most people. famous people in the world at the time. Well, that too. Actually, there was <laughs> as the boat came in, there was a whole uh, class of, of uh, high school girls yeah. getting off the boat, and they're all like, oh, Beatle, you know. <laughs> and John just kind of like, calmed down. If everybody stops screaming, I'll sign an autograph for everybody. And he was wow. pretty quick about it. Yeah. They all got an autograph when we got on the boat. And, uh, and was there a sense when you were taking this photograph that it would go on to have a political importance? Um, not so much. I mean, I was I was making a statement mm -hmm. about the immigration case, and I thought it would have some impact on that, which it didn't. But it turned out to be a much, much bigger uh, photo and meaning, yeah. uh, and it took on a life of its own. Uh, certainly, it's 40 years later now. I took the picture in 1974, yeah. 45 years later. Are these like, is this like a, a time capsule for you when you look back? Not all of us have our lives documented, mm. you know, in the way that you do. You can look at these and be taken back to a time or a place. When I see it, I can hear it and smell it. I remember being there. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. it is very much, you know, my life. It's my, my, di my photo diary. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bob Gruen talking about taking photos of his best friend, John Lennon, 
on the Richard Krause Classic Rock Special. A big thanks to Bob, also a big, big thanks to Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen and bassist Tom Peterson. A huge shout out to the original lead guitarist and co-founding member of KISS, Ace Frehley, for being here, and to drummer Liberty DeVito. Find his book, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, wherever you buy fine books. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and rock on. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 